Hi, I'm Craig Smith, and this is Eye on AI. We've been slow getting started this year, so apologies to regular listeners. I've been working on an AI-enabled audio editing tool to speed production of the podcast. I'll let you know if it works. This week, I talked to Terry Sanowski, one of the pioneers of deep learning, who together with Jeff Hinton created Boltzmann Machines, a deep learning network that has remarkable similarities to learning in the brain. I had recently read Terry's wonderful book, Deep Learning Revolution, and so our conversation followed much of what I learned from his writing. Terry has a remarkable mind, focused now on the convergence between deep learning and neuroscience. We talked about whether machines dream and the algorithms of the brain, whether Marvin Minsky was the devil, and how deep learning is shaping the future of education. Terry is also the chairman of the NeurIPS Foundation, which puts on the premier AI conference each year. We ended by talking about what's in store for the conference, which has grown and grown in recent years. I hope you find the conversation as captivating as I did. Speaking about deep learning, you're one of the founders. So I thought I'd ask a little bit about how you got into machine learning and in particular around the time that you and Jeff Hinton developed Boltzmann machines and what Boltzmann machines meant for the development of deep learning. Well, I was trained as a physicist, theoretical physicist, got my PhD from Princeton University and was fascinated by the brain. And what does a physicist do? They, they write down some equations and then try to solve them. And these are particularly difficult for the brain because it's, it's the complexity of the brain is so great. And all of the equations are nonlinear. And, and, and in mathematics, these are the toughest equations because there, there are no methods really that can allow you to analytically solve them, predict what the behavior is. So at the time, we, you know, we were doing simulations with computers that really were puny in comparison to today's computers. Machine learning was in its infancy back then. The particular way that Jeff and I got into it was through neural networks that were bio-inspired from how the brain is organized, but these are much simpler in terms of connectivity patterns and the complexity of the neuron itself. In our model, they're just simple functions, nonlinear functions. But they were sufficiently complex that we were trying to use them to solve complex problems in vision. Mm-hmm. You know, vision seems very simple and deceivingly so because of the fact that when we open our eyes in the morning, we see objects, we pick them up. You know, that seems like doesn't take any, any effort, any thought. And that's because nature has evolved our brains to see and to move over hundreds of millions of years. And that machinery is just opaque. We don't understand it. We had no concept back then mm-hmm. for the degree of complexity. In other words, how much computing power the brain has. Mm-hmm. And so it was really a challenge, and not just you know for us trying to understand the brain, but also for engineers who were trying to write programs that could run on a computer that would allow a computer to see as well as people. But we started out, our goal was to try to solve a problem that had been thought 
to be impossible to solve, which is trying to take a network with multiple layers. You have an input layer, you have an output layer, and you have layers in between. In the real brain, those would be the cerebral cortex. Mm-hmm. So over the surface of the brain, that really is representing the world and all of your plans and actions, and, and you know it's the highest level of processing in, in your brain. There's an outstanding problem, which was how do you learn in a system that has that complexity with all those layers? And it was generally thought, because of early work that was done in AI in the 60s, that no one would ever find such a learning algorithm, because it just mathematically was, looks, looked at it was too difficult. And that's where Jeff and I invented the Boltzmann machine. And so what is the Boltzmann machine? The Boltzmann machine is an architecture that's inspired by physics. And what made it different from all the other architectures at the time that were being looked at was that it was probabilistic. Mm-hmm. See, normally, if you have a system where the input comes in like into your retina and it goes through a series of stages, it does that in a deterministic way, mm-hmm. this, the models that were available at the time. But what we tried to do was to say, look, maybe we can make progress if instead of automatically getting the same output, if the unit itself would have a probability to have an output that varied with the amount of input that you're Mm -hmm. giving it. So more input probability gets higher, it's going to produce an output. And if the input is low, you know, you'll still produce an output with a very low probability and it, it, it introduces a degree of variability. Not only that, but it creates a different class of network, which is generative. What do I mean by that? By that, I mean in the traditional uh, input-output network, you know, no input, no output. Basically, there's nothing going on inside. But in the Boltzmann machine, even without an input, the thing is chugging away because there's always some probability that there'll be an, an output from each unit. And that, therein lies this, the, the secret that we discover to how you are able to learn in a, a very complex network with many layers, which we now call deep learning. And that was by giving the network the input and then keeping track of the activity patterns within the network. And for each connection, you kept track of the, the input and the output, the correlation. But then, in order to be able to learn, and this is all mathematical analysis that we had done, you have to basically get rid of the inputs and the outputs and let it free run. In a sense, put the network to sleep. But it's not off because it's chugging away. And and you you can do the same measurement for every pair of units with a connection. You keep track of the correlation. We call that the sleep phase. And the learning algorithm is very simple. You subtract the sleep phase correlation from the awake learning phase, and that's how you change the strength of the weight. Mm-hmm. Either it goes up or it goes down. And we showed that if you do that and you have a big enough data set that you can learn arbitrary mappings. And not only that, and this is the generative part and why it's actually, this is a much more elegant architecture than the traditional backprop that we now have that mm-hmm. are, is used routinely, is that once you've trained it up, you now can look at the output and say that, that you've trained it to, in, in order to be able to discriminate between which is what we, at the time, what we were doing, handwritten digits on zip codes. You know, yeah. So there's 10 output units. And so you give it some input, which is a little handwritten number, two. And then the unit at the very top, which represents two, is going to be active at the highest level compared to the other units. And so that was how you classified the digits. But now what you can do is clamp, we called it, which means that you fix the output of the two so that it's the only one that's active and the rest are off. And now that percolates down because this network had inputs and outputs going up and down. Hmm. It was literally a very highly recurrent network. 
And what it would do is start creating inputs mm-hmm. that looked like twos. But they would be constantly changing. You know, the, the the loop at the top would come and go, and then the loop at the bottom would come and go, and it would they would wander around. And so it was basically dreaming. It was a dreaming about two-ness. And, and the network had created an internal representation of what it meant to be a two. And when you say put it to sleep, you mean stop with the inputs. That's right. That's right. In other words, you, you prevent any input from coming in so that the network could express an input that represented yeah. this concept at the highest level. And so the information now, instead of flowing from the input to the output, is flowing from the output to the input. And that's what's called a generative network. Mm-hmm. And now we have even more powerful generative networks, yes. the generative adversarial networks, which are amazing because not only can you generate twos, but you can generate pictures of people's faces. Right. You can generate, you know, you give it, you have to give it a bunch of examples, right? You just yeah, give it a sure. bunch of examples of rooms like the one we're in, and it will start generating new rooms that don't exist with, you know, different kinds of tables and chairs and windows. And they all look real, photorealistic, and that's what's really astonishing yeah. because we can create very high-fidelity models of the world. And in a sense, that's what the brain has because when we fall asleep and we dream, I mean, that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing the generated patterns that are based on our experience. And, I mean, that's a, a nice analogy, but you say in the book that a lot of times analogies are wrong. Do you think that it really is an analogy for brain learning during sleep? We thought so. Jeff and I were completely convinced we had figured out how the brain worked. Mm-hmm. In other words, is it just a coincidence that in order to be able to learn in a multilayer network, you had to go to sleep? Humans go to sleep every night for eight hours. Why do we go to sleep? Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, and this is really fascinating area because one of the areas that now that I've helped to, to pioneer is trying to really understand what goes on in your brain when you fall asleep. Neuroscientists and people who are doing computational models like me have really made a tremendous amount of progress on understanding something about how experiences you have had during the day get integrated into your brain at night. It's called memory consolidation. Mm -hmm. And there's an overwhelming amount of evidence now, both on the psychological side but also recordings, that this is what's happening. There's something called replay that happens between a part of your brain that's important for Memories, uh, episodic memories, things that have happened to you, events, unique objects, things that something happens to you during the day that's never happened before, right? And you remember it. You need the hippocampus for that. Mm -hmm. And during the night, the hippocampus plays back, literally, those experiences to the cortex. And the cortex then has to integrate that into the knowledge base, the semantic knowledge that you have about the world. It turns out that the Bolson machine analogy turned out actually to be a really good insight into what's really going on during sleep. But now, obviously, what's really going on during sleep is uh, orders of magnitude were complex in terms of the numbers of neurons, the patterns of activity, which we have studied in great detail. But we really think that computationally, it's, it's actually what's going on. So this is really, this is a theme that has come out which, which is really the, the central theme of my book, which is that there's a convergence going on right now between our knowledge of the brain, on the one hand, and yeah. our ability to now create these large-scale networks in the image of the brain. Not precisely. We're not trying to duplicate the brain, but rather take the principles from the brain and try to build up systems that have some of the capabilities of the brain, like vision, like speech recognition, 
like language processing. And, and, and this is really going back and forth now because now neuroscientists are watching what's happening with deep learning and getting inspired mm-hmm. and coming up with hypotheses and now going back and testing it in the brain. And as we learn more about the brain, how it solves these problems, we can take that and I'll give you some examples like attention. You know, one of the things we're looking around is that, is that we're not just trying to process everything that's out there. We focus. Right. Uh, you focus on a particular object you want to pick up. You focus on reading. You're reading a sentence and you're, you're looking for something, right? And that means you have to redirect your attention around. Well, it turns out that if you add attention to these deep learning networks, you vastly improve their performance. When you add attention, in, in, in what way? By focusing the inputs? By or? having the network decide what's important in a scene like this. In other words, mm-hmm. salience. What's, what's important? Where, where should you be looking? Mm-hmm. Or if, if you're trying to do language translation, you, know, you may want to, to have a word at the beginning of the sentence may have a strong relationship with a word later in the sentence. And so you want to be able to hold on to the, that information, attend to it, while the inputs are coming in in sequence, and now another word shows up, and those two words have to link together, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why attention is a way of marking and saying, this is important, keep it in mind. And then after you've linked up all these words in, into a semantic, it's now meaningful representation, you then begin to output words in another language, again, respecting those relationships between the words, how they're ordered and what their clauses are look like. And in German, you have to wait to the end of the sentence in order yeah. to put the verb, right? The network has to understand that. It has to keep track of what the verb is, know what the verb is, and know where to put it. And, and this is all something we take for granted, right? That's what our brains are really good at. Yeah. And so as we learn more about the mechanisms that the brain uses for processing words and also you know speech, vision, and so forth, these will get incorporated and improve the performance of the networks. And it's now, especially with natural language processing, this has really reached a point, as, as you probably know from your cell phone, where it's, it's really good. I mean, you know, yeah. speech recognition has gotten amazingly good for, you know, speaker-independent speech recognition. It's just an amazing, you know, ability now, even in noisy environments, to be able to detect people, you know, and, and now even, you know, voicemail is getting transcribed on your phone. So this is like, you know, it's a whole new era. Yeah. Two things on that. On the attention part, I read a paper that they were doing some psychometric testing of networks, and the network could solve certain problems as well as or better than humans, but they really broke down on, uh, it was called a concentric circle test or something, where there were dots and you had to identify which pattern was in a concentric circle, even though the lines were not. Yes, I'm familiar with that test. Okay, and the the network performed very poorly, and they realized that the sensors were evenly dispersed in the field of vision, and just intuitively they thought, well, let's try like focusing the sensors and giving the computer vision foveal vision, you know, a focus, and bang, it it outperformed the humans. I mean, that to me was really interesting about, I don't know if that's related at all to the idea of attention, but... Well, what you're describing is overt attention. So because we have a fovea and can move it around, we can automatically attend to, with high resolution, a particular object in front of us and then jump to another object or on the face you could... We're not aware of it, but we are, we're, we're jumping around three times a second. And that means you're taking in, you know, in input and combining them across saccades, they're called, 
very fast uh, eye movements. But then there's uh, covert attention. In other words, I could be looking at this and attending to you. Mm-hmm. And that means that I have the ability in my mind's eye to you know, switch information channels around. And, and both of those are important. And you're describing going from a camera, which has a uniform resolution, right. to a foveal representation, which you have very high res at the very central few degrees, and then falls off in our eyes very, very rapidly. It's very still very sensitive to motion and to other things that you need for alerting you. If there's something coming at you from the side, you, you want to respond to that quickly. Mm-hmm. But you may not be able to detect what it is with low res, but then you could look at it. And it's interesting. This is another case where the model that we have for computer vision is based on the camera, which is frame-based. So when you're taking a video, it's really a sequence of frames, images. And your brain then puts them together into a sequence. And so you can see motion and recognize things that are moving. There's a, a whole new generation now of cameras that are based on how your retina works. Your retina is actually a part of the brain. It's a little pouch in your eye back surface. And what it does is it, it, through several layers of processing, it then converts the image first into electrical signals and then into spikes. Mm -hmm. The information that's flowing into the brain has coded information about things having to do like color, motion, and other, other properties, for example, in time, how are things changing in time? And the relative of strength, for example, on an edge where you have a change in contrast, that's coded in in spikes. So you have all of that information now in this train of spikes that is asynchronous. What do I mean by that? Unlike a frame where you collect information over, you know, 30 or 40 milliseconds, you can send a spike out any time. And that means you can send out spikes as something occurs in the world with millisecond or less you know, microsecond precision, and the relative timing of the spikes carries a lot of information about where things are going, much more information than if you use a frame-based camera. Hmm. So it turns out that a lot of computer vision is simplified if you use the spike-based representation. It's called a dynamic vision sensor. And what's, what's nice about them is that they're very low power because they're only putting out these spikes, and it's very sparse in the sense that if nothing's moving, you, you actually don't get anything. You have to have motion. And it's a very uh, lightweight. It's the perfect thing that you can you can use. For example, if you want a robot, because you know, you know, power in a robot is just like you know, very very expensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- th- and so if you can do vision with spikes instead of uh, supercomputers, the GPUs, which is what being used for deep learning now, it's easier to be autonomous, and and that's where we're headed. That is to say, edge devices like your cell phone and your watches now, they're computers, and they're soon going to have chips in it, which are deep learning chips, which are very power-hungry, so you know you have to have better batteries. Right. But ultimately, if you could replace the digital circuitry with some of the, these analog VLSI circuits, like the DVS camera, that is going to revolutionize you, you know the, the amount of computing you can do on board, you know, on, in your hand. The spike model is analog as opposed to digital. Well, the spikes are interesting. So the br- neurons in the brain emit these spikes, and and they're all or none. They last about a millisecond. So and, and they're very s- relatively slow compared to digital electronics. It's in the sense that they they are analog ultimately. The difference between a digital circuit, a digital chip has a clock. And on every cycle, every transistor is updated, right? So you have to have a synchrony across the whole chip. 
rests in <clears throat> one of these uh, analog VLSI chips. It's asynchronous. So every single model neuron can emit a spike whenever it wants. And these are then transferred up the road to the other chips through a digital line. So it's a hybrid chip, right? It has a analog processing, which is really cheap yeah. and not very accurate, by the way, but that's okay. It turns out that if you do a lot of parallel computations with a lot of elements and then integrate that information, it turns out that you're, you're better off. But to communicate between chips, just like the way the brain does, you have to, you have to use these, these long-distance connections. And, and in the case of these uh, analog VLSI chips, you can basically convert it into a digital bus, send the information over you know, using uh, pr- some protocol. That was the 80s, and that was a very exciting time. But once we realized that learning was possible in multilayer networks, then a bunch of other learning algorithms were discovered literally within years. And the one that has been the most popular is the backpropagation of error, which requires that you take information about how well you're doing by comparing it to a teacher, a labeled input, and then using that error to go backwards and update the weights as you go down. And, and that was a very efficient, you know, stochastic gradient descent. It's basically you're always reducing the error, and you can do that very efficiently and very quickly. And so because it's so efficient, it's now the way that most of these practical problems are attacked with bigger and bigger and bigger networks. And it's reaching the point now where, you know, the brain has like 12 layers yep. in the cortex, in the visual cortex. So now people are dealing with networks that have 200 layers or more. And what we didn't know back then, and this is the key to success, is that these learning algorithms scale very well. What do I mean by that? So a typical algorithm in AI is able to solve small problems where you have just a few variables that you're trying to find an optimal solution for. Traveling salesmen is a good example. You give it a bunch of cities and say, what's the fastest route between the cities? So you visit them all once. Right. Well, that's called NP-complete. What that means is that as the number of cities goes up, it becomes exponentially more difficult. It's, it's just, you know, at some point, it doesn't matter how fast your computer is, you're just going to saturate it. And that's the problem with many of the algorithms that have been used that are used in a digital computer with a single processor, which is von Neumann architecture, where you have the memory separated from the processor, mm-hmm. so you have this bottleneck between the two. Now... Fast forward, here we are. The beauty of these neural networks that we pioneered in the 80s was that they're massively parallel. That means that they're simple processors. The memory is located on the processor. They're together, so you don't have to ship it back and forth. In the brain, we have 100 billion neurons that are working together in parallel. So, So it means that you can just do much, much more computing in real time, and you don't have to worry about buffers or anything. And as you add more and more neurons to your network and more and more layers... The performance gets better and better and better. And that means it scales beautifully. In fact, this is this is absolutely amazing, right? If if you have parallel hardware, that is to say, if you're simulating each unit at the same time and you're passing the information through the connection weights at the same time, then it's called order of one scaling. That means it's independent. The amount of time it takes is independent of the number of units you've got. It's fixed. Yeah, And that's how the brain works. The brain is working in order one. In other words, as uh, the cortex evolved and uh, more and more neurons in, in primate brains, especially in human brains, 
it still works in in real time. It, it still works with the same amount of time in order to come to a conclusion, just to recognize an object. It's about 100 milliseconds. And and that that's really, you can't get better than that. So nature has found a way to scale up computation in a way that they were way ahead of us. Nature was way ahead of us. And now we're just finding that out. We're, we're actually be- beginning. And now uh, hardware has become a really big part of machine learning. And the reason is that up until recently, right, how many, there was memory chips, there were CPU chips, and maybe some digital signal processing chips. But now these machine learning algorithms are now being put into silicon. Google already has a tensor processing unit, TPU, which which does deep learning. But, you know, there's, there's a ton of other machine learning algorithms that could be put into silicon, and it's going to vastly improve the amount of computing that you can do because these are like supercomputers now, these chips. In fact, there's one, Cerebrus. They have a, a chip that is 20 centimeters across, 400 million processing units. Wow. Right? So that's getting up to real scale. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, of course, it's a kilowatt. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you have to have a, a power generator there. But it is scaling up. It's all being scaled up. And, and it's really it's a, it's a completely new type of chip that people are just beginning to appreciate. And, and some of the advantages are really, first of all, it's asynchronous. And it, that means you don't need a clock on a chip, right? You can just let the whole thing go. Number two, you, you can do it with low accuracy. You don't need 64-bit accuracy. You can get by with 8 bits, mm-hmm. right? So that means fast savings for, on memory. Mm-hmm. And then there's a high degree of connectivity locally. So that means that you know the processors that are near to each other have a lot of information that they're exchanging all the time, but that's okay. That's how the brain works too. And now you have all the you you load all the data as it's coming in, just the way it is through your senses. It flows through. It's like a pipeline, right? Information is circulating, and decisions are being made. It's a dynamical system. It's it's a, an incredibly complex dynamical system, ultimately. And we're faced now with an interesting problem, which is we can see how the problem was solved by, you know, looking at the input and the output. But what we really want to know is what's going on inside. Mm. How, what is it learned? Right. And now it's, it's, this, is, this is really the hottest thing right now is, is, is probing the artificial neural network with the same experiments that neuroscientists do on the brain. Because, you know, how do you figure out how, what is going on in the brain? Well, you put your electrode onto one of the units, and then you see what it responds to, when it responds. Is it firing before the decision or after? And that, that gives you hints. It, it tells you a little bit about how the information is flowing through the network. And so we're doing that now with these artificial networks, and it's really, it's, it's really exciting. I heard a talk yesterday, for example, from a, a language researcher who is using these uh, deep learning networks in order to create what's what's called word embeddings. And this is a way for language, for example, uh, a string of words coming in as a sentence, to be represented in a semantic space. And once you've done that, you can use it for answering questions from articles, the news article. I mean, it's amazing. It'll answer the question. You know, it, it will figure out, you know, the semantics and what's going on, and it'll answer the question. But now what they did, they, what they went in and they said, well, how was the sentence represented? And so they, what they did is they looked at the pattern of activity. They, it's in a, a million-dimensional space. It's huge. And then that collapses into a much lower subspace for a single sentence. And then they look at the graph 
of how the, the, the activity for the different words are represented. Mm-hmm. And it basically, it parses the sentence. It knows what the noun is. It knows where the phrase is. In other words, it, it has learned the structure of, of how syntax is organized in sentences. And it only it did that on its own, it's, you know, but by seeing a lot of sentences. Amazing. So, so that so what, what we're discovering this is like a little lab for language, I and mean, this is a new theory of linguistics is going to come out of this, right? Because in the very same network, we have both knowledge of syntax and semantics, just like we have in the brain. The brain doesn't have a semantics box and a syntax box, right? It's, it's integrating that information because it's all giving you hints about meaning which is ultimately what you need as the output. You need to be able to answer a question, right? You need to understand what's going on. You, you can't just, you know, look at, you know, the word order, which is what linguists were doing in the last century. You, you really need to know what the words mean. Right. On modeling the algorithms of the brain, Boltzmann machines, as you described, seem to come close the field shifted to backpropagation because it was so much more efficient, but it's pretty clear that the brain doesn't do backpropagation. Well, you know, it's doing something that may be equivalent. And now, you see, this gives us a real strong hypothesis, saying, okay, how could the brain do it, right? It's not going to, you're right, it's, it's not going to do the, uh, the, the same algorithm, but maybe there is, there is information, there are feedback connections, there are more feedback connections than feed-forward connections in, in this uh, hierarchy. What does that keep? Nobody knows what information is being carried. You know, it's, it's a mystery. And so now it gives us a hypothesis. Let's go in. Maybe that information is giving the earlier layer information about error. How to, how to change the weights. But it's, it may not be the backprop way of doing it, but there may be an equivalent way of doing it. But isn't that happening in the Boltzmann machine as well? You were saying that the, yes. the, the information during the sleep period right. is... Well, that's an example. Okay, that's an example. Uh, now, the Boltzmann machine has another assumption that we make, which is that the, every pair of units has reciprocal connections with equal strength. Which is a pretty strong assumption. I mean, it's approximately true in the, within the cortex, but it's not exactly true. Because of that, it, it is doing the equivalent of backpropagation, right? But it's doing it locally. It doesn't need to have the information flowing down from here. It's all being done at the same time over the whole network. And so it may be that the brain is somewhere between a Bolson machine and a backprop net, right? And this actually leads to a really exciting new, I think, area of research, which is of all possible computing systems, right, that are parallel, that have this ability to learn and the ability to uh, take in lots of data and be able to classify or predict. We're just scratching the surface here. Yeah. I mean, this, this is like, you know, the beginning of a whole new mathematical e- exploration of this of, of this uh, space. And, and I've written an article that was recently accepted in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The title of it is The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Deep Learning because it is able to do things that are unaccountable. We don't understand how it does so well, like this language example I was giving you. What it has done is something that nobody would have been able to predict that. Even back in the 80s, you know, if you had asked me, I would have, I would have said, well, that that's... Unlikely, you know, that's it's too difficult. The language is too difficult. No, it wasn't. And now we have to figure out why. And and now the mathematicians are getting interested because they have all the tools to go in mm-hmm. and and understand something about this class of functions and try to analyze the representations and the geometry. 
I like that my analogy here is what happened in math back 250 years ago when Joseph Fourier came up with a series expansion. It basically you have a series of terms that when you add them up is the solution to an equation. Now, when he came up with this, you know, he was just trying to solve a practical problem. And in fact, his paper was rejected by the mathematics journal. Why? Because, you know, he hadn't proved that the series converged. And, and furthermore, they didn't think these were functions. But now, 250 years later, this area of mathematics has been extraordinarily productive in terms of understanding a whole new area of math. It's called functional analysis. It's, it's, it's sort of like a jewel in the crown of mathematics. Okay, It went from some anomaly. Somebody who was trying to solve a practical problem came up with something that seemed to work. No one knew why. And now we, it's used routinely by scientists and engineers to solve these practical problems. And, you know, uh, and, and this is happening now. We have these networks. They're functions, mathematically well-defined functions. And now there will be a tremendous amount of effort. You know, many, many people now are beginning to use new tools and techniques. And what will emerge from it, I think, is a whole new branch of mathematics that will give us new insights. And not just, not just the, the analysis. We're talking here about statistics. So statistical analysis up until now have been done on relatively small data sets with a few variables and very constrained. Well, We've gone from a few parameters up to millions of parameters, right? So that, in terms of dimensionality, it's like going into hyperspace. And it turns out that the geometry of hyperspace is completely different. And I'll give you one example. Early in the, in the 80s, when we were developing these networks, they were tiny by today's standards. They had, like, you know, thousands of weights. By today's standards, you know, there are billions of – you have up to a billion weights now in these networks. So, I mean, it went up by you know, a million but already a thousand was so many more parameters than statisticians. They just took their hands and said, "You're going to overfit. You know, get memorized. It'll, you'll never generalize." And it did. We didn't need a, a, a lot of data. These are. It, it turns out you only need as much data as you have parameters, roughly. And nobody knew why. And then, the, and, and then we were told that you know non-convex optimization. That means there are a lot of local minima. And of course, in three dimensions, you know, we we can see mountains and we can see valleys and we can see little lakes and so forth. And yeah, there, are, you know, in, if if you're in three D, local minima, if you're doing gradient descent, you're going to end up, you know, in one of these holes. Well, we never got trapped in the holes. There's something different when you go up there. And what's different is that if there are a thousand parameters, then the chance that all thousand directions are upward is close to zero. There's always some parameter where you can go down a ravine, mm-hmm. there's always an escape in high-dimensional spaces. You're, it, it's a, they're called saddle points, right? Two directions go up, two go down. That's a saddle. And, and now, if you're in a million-dimensional space, it really becomes extremely diverse in terms of directions you can go. So you never get trapped until you get to the very bottom. So it's really a whole new mathematics of doing statistics in high-dimensional spaces, which is is a completely new territory. Wow. And that's what we pioneered back in the 80s. We were, we were the first to go into this, like Lewis and Clark, into this into this jungle and find out what was there. And we, now, now we're, we're at the point where we can really explore it really, really fast with modern computers. couple of questions. One historic, Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert kind of killed the the field with their book Perceptron. Papert seems to have come around. What was Minsky's view later on? I mean, well, I can tell you because I confronted him once. 
This was a meeting in 2006 on the 50th anniversary of the famous 56 AI yeah. meeting at uh, Dartmouth in the summer of 56, which brought together about a dozen computer scientists, including Minsky and McCarthy. And, and you know, these were the pioneers, uh, Newell and Simon, who, you know, they, it was, computers were new, and they said, well, gee, you know, uh, we can program them to do things like play games and uh, prove mathematical theorems, and maybe, you know, we can com- write a program that can duplicate uh, human intelligence. And that, that's what was very exciting at the time. So at 50 years later, the goal of the meeting was to, first of all, look back and see where they are. I mean, where are we? And look forward. And this was a very interesting transitional time because it was neural networks were just reaching a point where they were getting big enough to be interesting, right? Mm -hmm. But not yet solving any real-world problem, but getting, getting there. And so one speaker after the next got up and said basically the same story, like uh, Takeo Kanade, who was computer vision guy at Carnegie Mellon, said, you know, when I did my thesis, the memory could only hold one image. And so I was able to detect a tank in one image, but it wouldn't work with the second image, right? Right. He said, now my students have access to millions of images and, uh, on the Internet, and so we've, we now can solve it. We can detect tanks in any image. And, and everybody basically the same thing. And the same thing with uh, parsing sentences, right? Gene Cherniak, Brown University, said, you know, with the generative grammars that were available at the time, you know, from linguists like Chomsky, you know, we, we tried to write a computer program that would use that structure to be able to take a sentence and parse it. And it, it never worked. So we started collecting data from students who would parse Wall Street Journal articles. I don't know why Wall Street Journal, but they, 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 they you know, thousands and thousands of articles. And, and what they did was they collected statistics on trigrams, three words in a row, and what, what their parts of speech were. And with that, they were able, like, like a template, to go through and match new sentences coming in. And lo and behold, he said, we, we, we can now, we've made a lot of progress, and we can parse a lot of sentences pretty well now. Okay, everybody actually said the same thing, which was that without data, you can't solve these difficult problems. But as soon as you have enough data and know how to use it, then you can make progress. And so at the end of the the scientific session, Minsky gets up, and here's what he said. Shame on you. You have given up the goal of general intelligence. You're just working on applications. That's not intelligence. And I, I felt really embarrassed because... A lot of these were his students, former students and close colleagues. And this is like being present when a father is berating yeah. his son, you know, for not living up to right. <laughs> what, you know. So later at the banquet, after the banquet, I asked a question to Minsky. I said, look, there are people in the neural network field that think that you're the devil because of your book on perceptrons, right? Yeah. That, that you, you said in your view, no one will ever come up with a learning algorithm. Well, we've done that now. Are you the devil? And it, it was it was like I just pressed his button, and he just launched into this huge. And he's a very smart guy. He's very, he's, he, he's a good mathematician, and he's saying you guys don't really understand what you're talking about. We're dealing here with a mathematical problem that is so difficult, and you know you can, it's never going to scale. And and here's really what we're we're going to make progress. And I, and I said, Doctor Minsky. I asked you a yes or no question. <laughs> are you or are you not the devil? And Bob, he sputters and said, yes, I am the devil. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. I want to ask just on the analogies of the algorithms in the brain. 
everyone I've read over and over, and I had a conversation with Rich Sutton, that temporal difference learning is recognized as the algorithm that the brain is using in reinforcement learning. And my lab was the place where that came together. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so Rich Rich was uh, engineered in reinforcement learning, control theory. I had two postdocs in my lab, Peter Dayan and Reed Montague, and we came up with a hypothesis that, that the dopamine neurons in, in the basal ganglia That's were, right. were, were computing what's called reward prediction error. Mm-hmm. That's the key thing to temporal difference. And, and that has subsequently been tested in monkeys, and it gave rise to a huge, you know, with humans, with functional imaging, a huge, uh, you know, research projects. And now it actually created a field called neuroeconomics, mm. which is how humans make decisions based on the reward prediction error that is coming out of the dopamine neurons. Wow. So, so that was, he, you know, he was absolutely right. This has really had, a, again, a, a, a feedback from, from AI directly to neuroscience. And this was back in the 90s when, when we did that. Yeah, so bio-inspired. I mean, this is what's happening now over and over again. Is, is, as, as we understand a little bit more about what works in machine learning, we, can, we take that and we go back to the brain and look for it. Look for something, not, not the, the details necessarily, like you know, the, the backprop, but we look for the principles. Mm-hmm. The principle is that you have to have information about error somewhere in your system, and you have to get it to the right place at the right time. That, that's the principle now that we're working with in, in neuroscience. And I'll ask a, probably an ignorant question, but are these algorithms restricted to certain classes of neurons, or do algorithms in the brain function across groups of neurons? I mean, and could those same groups of neurons be executing other algorithms? I mean, or is there one, you know, master algorithm for the brain that is flexible enough that it's doing everything? I can assure you that's not the case. There is no master algorithm. We know enormous amount of plasticity. Mm. Plasticity is the change in the strength of connection between a neuron at synapses. It's the change in the excitability of neurons. It's the change in thresholds. So all of those variables in neurons are under the constant shifts in order to maximize information flow, in order to be able to keep track of information content coming in that you want to hold on to. And so we've, we've already, uh, I would say, we know at least 20 algorithms for synaptic plasticity that are used in different parts of the brain for different purposes. So the, the, the answer is, short answer, is that nature has taken advantage of many, many mechanisms. And I'll give, just give one example just to bring home the point. We've been talking about deep learning. Well, that's a model for the cerebral cortex, which is the top right. of the brain. Well, right under that is the basal ganglia, where I was telling you mm-hmm. about the dopamine neurons, where that's where they live. And that's where temporal difference learning works. So there's two different learning algorithms. One, and they're both in the brain. There's a deep learning algorithm of some sort in the cortex, and then there's a temporal difference learning in the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia talks back to the cortex. There's a big loop there. And we know the basal ganglia is there for being able to learn sequences of actions that take you to a goal or a reward. And that could be far in the future. And that's what temporal difference does for you. And you put these two together, and what do you get? AlphaGo, huh. right? That AlphaGo yeah. depended on having a really rich representation of the board. That's deep learning. At the same time that it was making decisions about what move to make, and that's temporal differences. And it's the talk between those, the crosstalk, back and forth, that produces magic. By the way, I mean, this is another uh, sidelight, which is uh, Noam Chomsky brought, brought him up earlier in the case of, uh, of, of linguistics. 
he speculated again, like Minsky and Pappert, he speculated that there would be never any way that a learning system could learn language. It was just too complicated. It, you know, it was a New York Review of Book essay in 77. And if you analyze the logic, okay, of, of that, here's the uh, logic of both Minsky and Pappert and Chomsky. I'm the smartest person in this field, and I don't think it'll ever happen. I, it's inconceivable to me that this would work. Therefore, it's impossible. <laughs> it's called argument from ignorance. <laughs> And they were both wrong. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and so if, you, if you're a young kid getting started and if some expert tells you that it's not possible, don't believe them, yeah. right? The chances are that they, just because they know all the ways it won't work doesn't mean that they know a way that it can work. And that will require somebody new and fresh to come in and field like we were back in the 80s. We were very, in some ways, taking a big risk because you know, all the experts are telling us that this is a dead end. Forget it. We couldn't get, re- you know, you couldn't get funding. You couldn't get resources. They they were the ones that really had all of the uh, power yeah. in AI, and that's all changed, hasn't it? I do want to talk quickly about. Temporal dynamics of learning centers and the science of learning and when can we expect that to be productized for students in the market, whatever advances are being made. Yeah, Temporal Difference of Learning Center was one of six science of learning centers funded by the NSF, and that was uh, 10 years ago. And it was a $30 million 10-year project that we had, which involved 12 institutions and 50 investigators and 50 fellows, students, who were working together collaboratively on a wide range of projects. Our center focused on machine learning and neuroscience, putting those two together. And I'll just give you a couple of examples of what we did. So there was a robot that Javier Movellan put together called Ruby mm-hmm. that he brought into a classroom preschool, 18-month-old toddlers. And the, the purpose of the project was to try to see if you can get the toddlers to interact with the robot. And the robot wasn't very sophisticated, it just sat there, but it had very expressive eyes that moved around, and it had hands that could pick things up, and it had a Teletubby so that it can have things that the, the, the kids can press, and it, and it, it would uh, play music. So the idea was to interact with little kids. So here's what happened. They put this robot in, so the, and, you know, the kids are running around. You know, they have very short attention spans. And so they run over to the robot. What is this? And so the boys would run in to the robot and grab the arm and pull it off. Yeah. Because they're, they're testing things. And so you go back to the shop, and, and you got to repair it. And rather than put in an industrial-strength arm, which they could have, but that would be very dangerous, what they did was they put a pressure sensor. And so when that arm was yanked the next time, Ruby would cry. Boys would back off. Girls would hug it. Oh, that's so interesting. And so this is this is social engineering we're talking about. In other words, what is it that humans respond to? Yeah. How, how do you get humans to behave, how, uh, to interact with them, to get their attention and hold their attention? Because if you have a teaching robot, that's what you've got to do. You've got to yeah. be very interactive. And so they discovered many things like common – this is also very well known amongst people who study uh, child development, which is – uh, when a mother and a child are together, they have the, a common attention. When, when the, the mother points to an object, the baby will look at it, right? Most species don't do that. They don't have this common attention. And so Ruby was programmed to have a common attention. So if a, if a little kid pointed to the clock, Ruby would look at the clock. And the kids love this. They could do this for hours because they, yeah. you know, they had some control over this right. creature. And then you start incorporating learning, like you know, new language, new words, and language learning and so forth. No, so this is for us is a great experiment. We've learned so much from it. 
And we were afraid that the teacher was going to get threatened. Why? I mean, you heard about AI is going to get you know, <laughs> jobs are going to lose jobs. Well, I mean, our teachers going to lose jobs. No, the teacher loved it. Why? Because for the teacher, it helped her with crowd control. Yeah. One of the biggest problems you have when you're teaching is just keeping everybody in line. And, and yeah. Ruby was a way of doing that, helping her as an assistant. Yeah. It was assisting her be a better teacher. Yeah. And that's been the, the, the experience we've had all along. Whenever we do something that looks like it's going to threaten jobs or, or not, it basically helps people do their job better. Okay. Yeah. Now, the second project, this is one that I undertook with Barbara Oakley, who's a engineer at Oakland University in, in uh, Michigan. And we put together a MOOC, Massive Open Online Course, which became widely popular. Oh, it, it, learning to learn. Learning how to learn. And w- what was our goal? Our goal was to try to help students become better learners, taking advantage of what we know about how the brain learns. And so Barbara would give a lecture on some practical advice about how to solve a problem like an exam, anxiety, you know, mental block, procrastination. And then I would give the what's going on in your brain and why this is happening, why this works, why this is going to work. And, and, you know, and so I'm giving them brain lessons. At the same time, Barbara's giving them practical lessons. And we, we use green screen so that we can have things in the background, pictures of neurons, things flying around, just like the weatherman. We use humor to try to you know, get the people's emotions involved and not just you know, have a dry talking head. In any case, it became the most popular MOOC. Uh, now over 3 million people have taken it. I get fan mail every day. People in 200 countries, ages you know, 10 to 90. It, and it really is having an impact. And this is, I think, what we were headed, which is that we can use assistance, right? Like, for example, Alexa. You can imagine Alexa being programmed so that it interacts and it help educate you know, individuals, have a model of that child, not just all one way. Although it, Coursera is a really great platform because it allows you to, to have a forum where students can ask questions and we have TAs that go and help. Yeah. And there are meetups in cities at you know, Starbucks, meet there on Sunday at noon. And so there's a lot of machinery here to help you know, get the students interacting with each other. In education, it's been well established that by far the best education is when you have one-on-one with an adult who's a really good educator and a child, and the adult understands the child very well over many years and can help the child get through mental blocks and so forth. But that's very expensive, very labor-intensive. That's right. But but presumably, as natural language processing improves and all of these other facets, I've been talking to companies that are already putting into the market AI tutors that track your performance and kind of understand the patterns of your learning and when to intervene. And So th- th- actually, there have been programs that have provided that now for you know, 20, 30 years. So that's not new. What's new is the interface. And if you actually look at what deep learning has been successful at, it's been the machine-human interface, speech, vision, language. That, that, that's what humans communicate with each other through, right, through these channels. And that's where we've made the most progress. And that can be put into use now immediately in order to be able to bring to the, the student, instead of sitting in front of a computer and pressing the buttons, yeah. now the, the student can talk to Alexa or the tutor or the assistant or whatever. And now that can be a dialogue. It could, you know, it's, it's going to be much more efficient. It'll be much more natural, and it'll make it more fun to have somebody that you can talk to, right, rather than a computer. Yeah. Uh, do you know of anyone that's that's doing that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Amazon. 
uh, is, is actually has competition where, you know, they want people to write programs for Alexa. And so there's educational programs out there now for Alexa that are, are being built. Education, I think, is going to be the killer app for deep learning. And, and the reason is it's so important. It's such a problem. You know, we have we have a terrible problem in the U.S. where our educational systems have failed us, yeah. K-12. And, you know, if this has long-term consequences. That is, it's going to go on for a generation. So this is really, if we have a new technology now that can be delivered, my MOOC is an example of the first wave of that, right? Yeah. This is one way, but uh, eventually it'll be two-way. It'll be one-on-one. And, and that's going to make education so much richer and so much better for everybody. You know. And it's not going to get rid of the teachers, right? Because you still need humans in the loop overseeing things mm-hmm. and making decisions about blocks you know, in terms of should, when is a student really going to go on to the next block and so forth. Uh, very complex decisions that have to be made. Our center, TDLC, Temporary Learning Center. It's still, still running? No, it, uh, the 10-year grant finished in uh, 2018. What we're doing, though, is going international. Hmm. So we've organized meetings with other countries. And they were, by the way, we inspired science of learning centers in Australia and Brazil. And, and, you know, many countries now are following the lead that we took 10 years ago. And now we're getting some of the big foundations interested, like, you know, Shan Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. a Gates Foundation. I mean, these are powerhouses. You have multi-billion sure. dollar powerhouses. And I think that we're reaching that point now where with the right international cooperation and funding from the major foundations who are in this business, right? That's, they're in the sphere of trying to help education. I think this could be a real worldwide effort to create a much better learning environment that is based on the brain of how learning really works and also delivers teaching through the most uh, powerful channel we have now for communicating, which is the Internet. All the pieces are falling into place. Before that penetrates into classrooms, do you think it's five years, ten years? Ah, Here's what I learned, first of all, through this center – we thought that we were going to be bringing science to the classroom. No, the classroom brought data to us. We learn an enormous amount. But delivering was incredibly difficult because of all the barriers. There are gatekeepers yeah. at every step. There are 12,000 school districts in the U.S. Yeah. And if you needed to take some software into a classroom, you're going to knock on 12,000 doors. And then if, if you get past those doors, you have a problem with unions. You know, do, do teachers want to learn a completely new curriculum that you'd need to actually deliver this stuff? And so it was clear that, you know, we're, we're academics. We don't know how to do this. You'd have to start a business. And so it would just be – and it would, it would take decades, many decades, yeah. right? Because our educational system is so frozen. And, and you know, and, and and you know, it's it's a huge multi-trillion-dollar industry. So this learning how to learn Coursera taught us something. It taught us that the way that you get into people's homes is to bypass all the gatekeepers and go directly through the internet. Anybody with an internet connection, any place in the world now has access. It's free. Yeah. Right. The lesson is that you don't try to reform the system. That's not going to happen. But. Using the tools now that are available with machine learning and the Internet, you can jump over that. And, and parents, of course, they want the best for their kids. Of course. And that's happening more and more. The parents are, are figuring out that they can get much better lessons for their kids through the Internet than, the, than they're getting at school. And, and so that's going to happen. That's going to be accelerated. And now if we have a, a personal teaching assistant, right, that's coming out of 10 million of these uh, smart speakers that people have in their homes – 
They already have the technology in their homes. You just got to now use it. You have to program it. You've got to get deep learning there in the loop. And, that, and that, so that's where I think things are headed. And how long will that take? Well, you know, in a sense, the hardest part has already been done, which is building up the infrastructure. The infrastructure is there. And now it's, it's, it's going to be companies going in with software and building up better and better interfaces. You know, it's not easy. I mean, you know, we're, we're dealing with very complex problems that kids have when they're learning. So, you, you know, you have to really understand something about, you know, being a really good educator at the same time that you're being a good engineer. But that will happen. It's already happening. One of the big themes this year is things like bias and fairness and ethics and so forth. That's become a very major issue with AI, as you probably know. How do you get rid of bias in your data? I mean, this is a technical problem that can be solved. But here's the the problem. It turns out it's very difficult to, for example... Fairness. The, the word fair means different things in different cultures. Yeah. And so there's dozens of definitions for what's fair. And so here's this poor engineer who's trying to make his algorithm fair. And, you know, who do you listen to? What, is your, what are you trying to accomplish here? And, you know, and it raises these issues that it, it, before were just people debating, but now it's real. Like, you know, we have this program, and it's, it's giving advice about hiring and medical problems and, you know, all, all of these things which are very important for how, how human beings interact with each other. And now we, we, have, we have to be explicit. We have to decide how to, how to make it fair. And you, you tell me what I should put into my loss function. You know, if you're a company, you're trying to maximize profit, but then you also want to have fairness. You have to decide what's the balance between the two. And what do you mean by fairness? And what, what, is, what is bias? And, what, you know, there are programs now that are being used for screening applicants, job applicants. And people are getting very upset and say, what do you mean AI is making these decisions and it's all biased and so forth? And I agree that the program is biased. But do you think that the, the human who is making decisions, are they biased? You know, we have this program. We, we have control over it. We can actually go in and we can adjust it so it's not biased. How easy do you think it would be to go into the brain of the human and change them, right? In other words, in some sense, the, the biases that were in the programs were reflecting the biases of the humans and the differences that we can actually – we have access to the, right. the, the machine learning in a way that we don't into the humans. And so therefore – and humans are not even aware of their bias. They just, you know, this is part of the way the brain works. Sure. Yeah. So this is where it's what's going to happen over the next decade is there's going to be this learning process where people are beginning to learn how to be explicit about you know, what are the goals and, and who's making decisions about that. How do, how do you balance between all the different goals you might have? And, that, and that's great. Because we, we needed this debate. You know, people have been debating this for a long time. But now it's, we can actually do something about it. Where is NURPS going? There was a joke, I think, in Montreal that if it keeps on increasing at the rate it's been increasing in however many years, everyone in the world will be going to NURPS. So what is the plan well, we're reaching a point now where the meeting has grown and grown exponentially. It's like 40 or 50% per year for the last five years. And you're right, that's the joke. We want to maintain the high quality. We are the premier machine learning AI conference now. 
But we can't continue to grow like this. And we don't know how much longer. Uh, right now, there's a great demand. A lot of the reason people come to the meeting and sponsors come to the meeting is that they're looking for jobs and sponsors are trying to recruit. But you know, having one monolithic meeting, which worked for us for a long time, is probably no longer practical. And so one of the things the board is now discussing is having additional meetings during the year, smaller meetings, spread out, distributed over many locations and countries on specific themes. And the idea is that by having a bunch of these satellite meetings, we will then take the burden off the main meeting. All of our lectures are streaming. And by the way, we have now four tracks, right? We went from one to two, now we have four. All that is streaming through the Internet. Anybody now can, in a sense, watch the lectures. But that's not as much fun as being here. So the meetups are places where people can come and congregate, maybe movie theater, you know, Google has a big auditorium, and they, they have a lot of machine learning people. And so that what you do is you bring all together, they listen to the lectures, you have some food for them to interact with each other, coffee and so forth. And so there are 40 of these meetups, right? And they are self-organized, you know, all over the world. And, concurrent uh, with Concurrent, the, yeah. you know, literally, and in real time, watching these lectures as they're streaming across. To, again, taking advantage of modern technology to be able to distribute the information, to be, draw in more people. It's also better for carbon. You don't have as many pounds of carbon dioxide going into the air, right? That's it for this week's podcast. I want to thank Terry for his time. I encourage all of you to read his book, Deep Learning Revolution. If you want to learn more about what we talked about today, you can find a transcript of this episode on our website, I on AI, that's E-Y-E hyphen O-N dot A-I. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to contact us with comments or suggestions. The singularity may not be near, but AI is about to change your world, so pay attention. Thank you.